The following is a special presentation of the Buccaneers Sports Network. This is the Jay and Keith Show. Two broadcasters, two microphones, and one meticulously scripted podcast. You what? Just kidding. Get it, J.K.? You get it. That's what I thought was so funny. It's not funny. Alongside Keith Break, here's the voice of the Bucks, Jay Sandoz. All right, it's another edition. Jay and Keith, we're talking ETSU football. We're talking Southern Conference football. And, well, for ETSU, another game where they kind of shot themselves in the foot, especially in the red zone. I mean, you talk about the opportunities ETSU got in the red zone. They converted. The problem was they converted field goals, and Tyler Keltner ties the school record with four made field goals. Graduated Tyler Keltner, but you'd rather see Tyler Keltner right, kick extra points as opposed to field goals. When Mercer got in the red zone, uh, they had a majority touchdowns, where ETSU had a majority of field goals. And this was a strange game, to say the least, because if you just look at statistical stuff, then I, you're probably going, well, Tish, you lost by about 40. and mm-hmm. and Or even said uh, 20, even if you went with what the actual final was, a 22-point, uh, you know, loss. But the problem was ETSU, with 10 minutes to go, was down 5, 38-33. And so I, I kind of go through this a little bit chronological, I guess. Uh, the, the first thing... And I'm going to double-check I have this right before I say it. That's why I'm, I'm trying to click on something real quick. I'm, I'm, I'm meandering until I can uh, figure out. Uh, average starting position was the midfield. So, because the last drive, ETSU actually started around their twenty, their 39-yard line. Their last drive started there. So, for the game, ETSU's average starting pos- field position was midfield. I can't think of another game wow. where ETSU got beat by 20 and had starting field position at at the 50-yard line. I mean, so the first – they got the turnover, the fumble, which was just Mercer took the eye off the ball. It was really nothing ETSU did besides jump on the football. They start on Mercer's 31, then their own 42 after a kick return, then their own 37 after a kick return. Then after a punt, they started on their 29. Then the big kick return by uh, Frierson got them down to the oh, – I'm sorry, the block punt got them to the one-yard line. Then they started on their own 30. Then the kick return by Frierson got them to the eight, technically the four, because the penalty moved it to the four-yard line. I don't I don't know why it says started eight, because the first snap was at the four-yard line. Um, then they started at Mercer's 35-yard line after a punt return. Then they started throwing 34. Then they started at Mercer's 20 after the interception. They're on 26, they're on 41, the 35, 25, then the 39-yard line. But still, in Mercer territory, inside the red zone three times. A couple other times at Mercer's 35 and 31-yard line. And you start at the 31, you get a field goal. You start at the one, you get a touchdown. Makes sense. You start at the four, you get a touchdown. That makes sense. Started at Mercer's 20, got a field goal. Started at Mercer's... Was that the last time Mercer's 35-yard line had to punt? Lost four yards. That was enough. So, uh, it was a situation where the defense and special teams kept making plays, and the offense had moments but just couldn't quite put it together. Better in the second half. I mean, they had a 17-play, 53-yard drive that ate up six minutes, 37 seconds, and ended in a field goal. They had shots early, and, and let's just let's just start with sort of 
how the game went. ETSU got a fumble. Yep. They had a chance to hit a play to Sailors, pass a, a little uh, ahead of Sailors. Sailors catches that on a third down play. It's either a touchdown, maybe one or two yard line, but your new set of downs if you didn't score. The third, the um, field goal drive in the third quarter, ETSU coming off an interception, similar. They had on a third and 12 a pass they threw to Anaj Carter. And, again, he's not the biggest guy. He ran a comeback route, and the ball's a little too tight. ETSU unable to convert on that. When they got in the red zone, went for it on fourth down, very successful a lot on fourth down. Not really that bad in third down. It was The problem was converting third downs in plus territory is really what kind of mm-hmm. kind of cost him. And then, you know, special teams is incredible. Four field goals out of Keltner. Trace Kelly averaged 50 yards a punt, had a 66-yarder to his name. His flipping of the field that led to the block punt was incredible. Then you look at the kick – and I, that's the one knock I would say on Mercer. They look great offensively, very creative, knew what they were doing, kept everybody off balance. They've kept everybody all season off balance. They do a good job of rolling out Fred Payton so that people don't have free runners. When ETSU did have free runners, Fred Payton didn't look real good. Mm-hmm. The problem was it's only about four or five times during the game they had a free runner. So they did great there. They played to their strengths. They still do the smoke and mirrors. They got ETSU out out of sorts a little bit. Um, defensively, they run to the football well. And because they play with leads, it's easier for them to take chances and do things. That, that doesn't cost them. So I think that's great. Special teams – Turk had a punt blocked. wasn't his fault. He was a great punt. Excuse me, great punting the football. Foster good kicking full goals. The kickoff situation. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish, but they are letting teams, and not just ETSU, but they're letting teams start. You know, around the forty yard line on average, mm-hmm. and I think that's the one thing when they play Chattanooga this week that could haunt them. They play an offensive-minded team like Sanford could haunt them. Giving them an extra 15, 20 yards to try to get points, That that's there's, they just squib it and short kick. I don't know if they don't have enough leg to get it in the end zone because they never tried it or if they don't think their coverage team is good or they think that's an advantage. But you're looking at the starting field position. I mean, ETSU, after kickoffs, started at their own 42, their own 37, their own 30, Mercer's four. ETSU's 34, one time ETSU at the 26, then at the 41, 35, 25, 39. I mean, you're just doing the numbers. Like That would be the one knock I would have on Mercer. Um, great ball hawking skills anytime, you know, a pass was um, – or and there wasn't that many errant passes, but a couple of the errant passes. One, Baron May, got, his arm got hit, ball kind of fluttered. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one where Tyler Rydell tried to, you know uh, – throw one kind of high and, and let Huzzy go up and try to make a spectacular play on a second one. That one may be forced to turn over. And then it was a miscommunication where, you know, thrown in between two receivers, uh, and the only guy there was the defensive back that ran it back for a score. So a lot going there. But I, he, this was a situation where Mercer looked like the best team in the Sun Conference to me, the eye test, considering I've seen, you know, I've not seen Sanford yet, but seeing Furman, seeing Chattanooga, now seeing Mercer – I think Mercer looks like they have more pieces together to me, and they've got a, a team that can really put up a lot of points, play very good defensively. There's some special teams, things that have me concerned. 
but they looked the part of a conference champion against DTSU. It's amazing how quickly they were able to score as well. I mean, you look at it, there are no, you know, 15 play, eight minute, nine minute epics in there to, to score all those touchdowns the way that they did or grind off all those yards the way they did. It's three minutes, two minutes, two and a half minutes, three minutes again, again and again and again, over and over and over, just... You know, rough, same number, seven, eight, nine plays, two and a half, three, maybe three and a half minutes. They did not, their longest possession of the game, of the entire game, was three minutes and 22 seconds right at the end of the third and early in the fourth quarter. They got a field goal out of it, nine plays, 67 yards. That's remarkable to me in that they were able to score quickly, routinely. They were, able, they were able to hit a ton of big chunk plays in the passing game. And now there are a couple of those, and uh, you you might talk about this. But the, the, the sequence to me that basically ended the game. I mean, it, it didn't necessarily end the game immediately or anything. But um, I think it's the moment where everybody kind of said, okay, it's we've given it everything we have, is you get Mercer in the third and four. And Peyton hits Brandon Marshall for 40 yards on a play where I believe you noted this on on the broadcast and certainly after the fact, uh, Chandler Martin got drilled over the middle of the field and didn't have a chance to drop back in coverage. And I believe Marshall was supposed to be his assignment on that defensive call. So he was left wide open because someone else set a pick that was not picked up by the officials. And the very next play, James beats his man one-on-one down the boundary as he is wont to do because he's a really good wide receiver for a 31-yard touchdown. Bang, bang, you go from third and four to in a 12-point hole uh, with however much time there was left at that point. I think there's like 10 minutes left. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's it. That, That was it right there. And then ETSU goes down the field. It's like, okay, still got a shot. Got a chance to answer, and Rydell is picked off in the end zone by Redding. And that was the moment that all of this was was done. But ETSU was in this game late, and it came down to a couple of plays. And even worse, something that was out of their control. A penalty was ostensibly committed and was not flagged by the officials. And those happen. Those do happen, right? But sometimes... They happen in really high leverage moments that make the difference between winning a game and losing a game, especially in the Southern Conference where games are so tight. So you look at that scoreline, and like you said at the beginning, this is a game that you think, yeah, okay, Mercer, better team. And Mercer was the better team. I won't deny that. Mercer was the better team. I think it's entirely fair to say Mercer looks like the best team, at least on offense and defense, in the Southern Conference. And they played like it. They made plays like it. Uh, but there were also some things that were outside the control of both teams that probably would have impacted the way this game played out when ETSU was in it late and had a chance to potentially go on the road and win it before the knockout punch was delivered with about 10 minutes left. I think the one thing Chattanooga did is they kind of exposed – especially early in the game on third and longs, deep in their own territory, that you can run the football against the recon package. It's the third straight game no doubt. early in the game. 
ETSU went to the recon package. Chattanooga picked up. Now, they started doing it in the fourth quarter. VMI in the first quarter was able on that first drive to pick up a couple third downs that way. And now you're starting to see Mercer. So teams have taken note. Like, hey, that recon package, tough to throw against. A lot of respect. So we're going to have to try to run it. And, and successful. And I thought Drew Chronic, he's been known as an offensive guru. I mean, he put up 56 against ETSU when he was at Furman as offense coordinator in 2017, which is the most points ETSU gave up since football had been back. The This is the second most. It was tied with Tennessee mm-hmm. uh, in that – I think that was 2017 as well, actually. So, um, looking at that and chronic, but the impressive, impressive thing to me was some of the designs in the red zone where they had all the action going one way and then either a throwback or set up fake a screen to Harper who's gotten every play and they throw to seldom use tight end or whatever. I mean, just well-designed. Sometimes it's about who has better athletes, right? And athletes make plays, you know. This was – they have athletes, but when you're able to get enough people flowing one way and then you've got Elijah Huzzy versus three offensive linemen to run through to try to make a tackle on the tight end because he's alone on an island by himself over there, pretty difficult task. And we love Elijah Huzzy, but that's that's a tough ask. And so there was a lot of that going on, um, especially in the red zone. They were so creative – and what they were doing, and you got to tip your cap. And then, you know, again, penalties hurt ETSU. The Bucks had a touchdown taken off the board. There was a holding call, and out of all the calls that we did and did not see, the fact that that one was called, you know, and I'm not arguing, you know, did Blake Austin hold or not, but there were so many other, uh, you know, kind of let it play out moments that that was called just really hurt ETSU because it took the – you know, the seven points off the board, ETSU ended up kicking a field goal. Mm. You know, I thought Chris Hope got away with one. I think Mercer had a legitimate gripe on Hope not playing the football in the corner of the end zone. So I'm not just saying this as ETSU, I'm a whiny, you know, fan, worker, whatever, uh, blue and gold goggles that, you know, the pick play uh, is the only thing that was missed. No, there were, you know, besides I thought there were four plays – and two win each way, which is, I guess, if you wanted to pull for something to happen, I guess you want it to be kind of equal and not four calls go against one team. But there was a hold against Quinn Smith on a touchdown that I thought was atrocious. Normally, hold on the inside is tough to catch, but when a you get somebody on the outside, normally it's easy to see because if a guy tries to turn and run and you see jersey pulled and pulled off a shoulder pad, generally pretty easy to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quinn Smith was held on the – the 48-yard touchdown. So two led, and again, give Mercer credit because two of the plays they got let go led to touchdowns uh, for Mercer. ETSU had one taken off the board because of a, a hold penalty and then weren't able to come up with a stop after they got the benefit doubt on uh, the no call in the end zone. And then one against Mercer, which was awful on the kick where there was a late hit out of bounds, which actually the ETSU uh, special teamer actually hit the Mercer player who ended up, after he got hit, went two steps out of bounds and made contact with an ETSU guy, got flattened, and they threw the flag. Well, after Drew Chronic lost his mind on that and was pointing to the Jumbotron, which they showed like seven times uh, the play to get the people really fired up about it, 
You'll be shocked to know that the very next play, there were three three flags from referees for holding on ETSU. <laughs> very shocked. But here's what was terrible about it. If they didn't throw the terrible flag on Mercer, ETSU just had the ball at the 35-yard line, first and 10. Well, they threw a flag on ETSU, so now it's first and 20. So ETSU got the 15 yards, and he got it to midfield, right? That's good. You start at midfield. But then they get the hold. Now you're first and 20. Well, I'm a firm believer if you blow a call, you don't have to – don't keep blowing calls. And, yes, you could call hold – on every play, there was two holding calls in the game. One Blake Austin on a touchdown, and the other one, every referee in America that was near the field threw a flag because they knew they blew the Mercer call. So not a banner day there. That being said, I don't think officials had anything to do with the result of this game. Don't do not get don't clip out my words here and go, uh Sando said, by goodness, the Mercer Bears won on some uh, you know, fluke officiating. No, Mercer won because they were the better team and quite frankly dominated if you just go over, I mean, 577 yards of offense, 383 in the air, five touchdown passes for Fred Payton. They ran for 194 more. I mean, I the only thing I could say was third down, they were three for the first four, and then ETSU figured out how to get Mercer off the field, but they – couldn't make enough plays offensively to kind of make them pay. And then Mercer converted the big third down again on the pick play. The hold on Smith, I think, is probably even more egregious for the simple reason of and, – and Stephen May, uh, our uh, head videographer, was there taking photos, videos, and then he actually sent me a picture, and he was not listening to the broadcast. He was like, hey, I don't know if you saw this, but Quinn Smith got held. That one – led directly uh, to a touchdown, yep. and he was the only guy out there, Quinn Smith, that, that could have made a play. And so he got held. That should have been called back. The pick play was big probably because it led to a touchdown the next play and effectively, as Keith said, ended the game or at least – you know, dire straits for ETSU, I guess, the pick. Where they of- had to score and then turn it over on the next drive, yeah. And, I mean, these things only – punctuated the outcome that I think to some degree we all thought was a possibility, which is that Mercer was going to win the game. Um, I I didn't really think it was going to be quite that lopsided. uh, And I think that's part of what happened with all of this. But yeah, when your offense is averaging four yards of play or 4.2 yards of play as ETSU, it's going to be really difficult to keep up with Mercer in any sort of game. It could have been a 17 to seven game let alone a 55-33 game, you were going to have a really hard time keeping up with them at four yards a, a play on offense. So um, that, you know, all of this is just, it's part of the way that this particular cookie crumbled and the way that we got to the point where everything settled to the outcome that we got. Uh, but I don't think this the, the outcome in general was ever something that... Um, was going to be influenced by anything other than the players on the field. Just the way that things shook out, the way when when things happened and didn't happen, uh, that influenced um, how we got to that outcome. You want to talk about? We want to flush this and talk about the SoCon. Uh, I mean, I do want to say just real quick because I thought the defense again did things to make plays. You know, they got sure, the, the yeah. first interception. You know, from Fred Payton, after the first couple drives, they kind of settled down. 
you know, didn't uh, give up a lot. Um, also, like, tip of the cap to Eric Campbell. He has been... He was an outside linebacker converted to an inside linebacker in the, I think in the spring, like late in the spring, they're like, we have to convert you to the inside. And uh, he is filled in for Steven Scott in two games. And I thought he's done a pretty admirable job. Uh, I know Billy Taylor was pretty happy with him last week uh, against VMI. Uh, haven't had the chance to talk to Billy this week about it, but um, the, the guy's playing hard and uh, he, he clearly senses that, you know, he has an opportunity to go do something to, to help the team compete and to help the team win. And uh, it seems like he, he's bought into doing that. So I if you have leading tackler again this week. Uh, I just think that's a guy that's done some good things for you. He even got in the backfield, was disruptive a little bit. You know, good for him. Like, good, good for that guy because he's somebody who had to bide his time, wait for an opportunity to really influence the defense. He made some plays on special teams earlier in the year. Uh, I think he was involved in the block punt at Bobby Moe. Um, yes, he blocked that. Yeah. So, I mean, he he's he's made those plays. He's earned the opportunity when the when he was called upon. That wasn't necessarily ideal circumstances because, because Steven Scott got hurt. But when he was called upon, I thought he's, he, he's acquitted himself very well. Yeah, so. and I, I think he, he played great. Um, I think, again... You know, you look at getting turnovers. Davion Hood able to cover up a fumble. Mm -hmm. Chris Hope making a diving play on a on an interception. Um, and don't call it a comeback for silent reporter Jess Raby, but she called that. She was like, "Hey, I think Chris Hope is going to be." You know, everybody's looking to Huzzy, which I was too. And she said, "Maybe it'll be one of the safeties that can come up and make a big play. Maybe get a turnover and interception." So. Nostradamus there, she was able to get, to get that call right. couple of injuries, you know, they, no Stephen Scott again, which you just mentioned because Eric Campbell was in. No Cam Lewis, had a hamstring injury. Solomon Dunn gets a couple of catches, I thought played very well, but he goes out with a little bit of an injury. Then Quinn Caballero, who doesn't normally play that position, was having to look to the sideline to figure out, you know, hey, I usually run the slot, now I'm on the outside, what's my route, you know, type deal. And so there was a little bit of that. Plus, offensive line took a massive hit. Tavon Matthews got rolled up, didn't finish the game, didn't play really the last three quarters. Um, we'll try to get an update on him. They tried to they put Nola Washan in at tackle, moved sets of corn over at right guard. Sets corn having trouble at right guard. They put Big Fred in at, at right guard. Got some big push from from Fred. Of course, Fred's about three fifty now, but you know they were able to get some stuff. They had to go to five wide. So there's some injury things. They're starting to mount up. Will Steven Scott in a thin linebacking core, can he come back this week? You know, especially against Sanford and how fast they really try to want to run. You need as many subs as you can. Davion Hood was a little banged up at the end of the game. You know, on the offensive side, Tavon Matthews, Cam Lewis, I think certainly big hits if they can't continue to play moving forward. So uh, some other storylines to keep up with uh, throughout the week. Should silence your phone when Chattanooga. But you know Chattanooga's feeling good when they're calling me. Oh you know? boy! Oh yeah! Oh boy! Here we'll, we go. We'll talk to. I'm sure he wants an update on Mercer because that's the big game going on. I'll call you later, Todd. We'll get you on that. All right, Todd. 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 Todd.
time we need to get the band to record this for you. We need the marching band to record this for you. You would, you would just, you need like ETSU's marching band to do this, to do that, that track for you. Lay, to lay, lay that one down for you. I, I see what I can, I can talk to Joe Moore, see what Joe can do yeah. for me, see if he can get it going there. Why not? Uh, let's talk about the, uh, the game of the week. Yeah. Citadel Wofford. Oh God. Oh my let's get it going, baby. My Wofford Terriers, Keith Break. I called it once, once. Once they got rid of the, the head guy, they cut the head off the snake. I have been a Wofford Terrier believer for one week. Proven right. I don't get a lot right. But I think Wofford won despite the head coach uh, and maybe freed up. Maybe they were miserable. Maybe everything was going. Maybe it's each other. Maybe Citadel's not good. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot to uh, unpack here. But I will say Jimmy Wyrick, 232 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Very efficient considering he completed 14 passes. Had a long of 56, but they found a nice little receiver, Landon Parker, you know, converted tight end, a couple catches, 61 yards and a score. Devin Matthews had a score. Mm-hmm. RJ Cahoe had a score as well. Then you look at Citadel, and I, I've not watched, and I, I'm going, trust me, because I'm that guy. No one wants to watch this game but me. So I'm going to go back, unless you're a Citadel Wofford fan. I'm going to go back and watch this because I was curious. Ahmad Green, I thought, played great. The last week, all things considered, against Furman, and I, he only threw one pass um, and five rushes. So I don't know if he started ineffective, lost it, or if they went back to Peyton Derrick. And I, I don't, I don't know. I do know this: that if you, um, I was paying attention to the game. It was seven-seven, and then I, I kind of tuned out and checked the score later, and it was thirty-one-seven. It escalated quickly. And Wofford was able to get a field goal and then three consecutive touchdown passes from Jimmy Wyrick from the three-minute mark in the second quarter to the 13. I mean, really, it was like six minutes of game action. They were able to get three touchdowns on the board for the Terriers, the high-powered Wofford Terrier offense. And, you know, both teams were able to move the ball, but Wofford at least seemed like they were able uh, to put points on the board. Actually, Citadel outgained Wofford 402 to 349. Now, I do know... There was the one interception uh, by Peyton Derrick, and I didn't see if there was any fumbles in the game, and actually there were none. So it was just one turnover. So give Wofford credit. They were able to break a 16-game slide and a big win over the Citadel. And uh, as they try to turn the page and look, uh, they got a, got a bye week. So not only does Wofford get a win, they get to celebrate it for two straight weeks because they're not going to play next week. Um, and then in two weeks they'll host ETSU. So they get two weeks to prepare for the ETSU Bucks on October 29th. But Wofford, uh, any That's thoughts? the second straight opponent the ETSU is going to get off the bye, right? It is a conspiracy that the league did not like ETSU won the league. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't know. But, yes, yes, it is the second straight. And who's ETSU have the week after? Let's just double check. Uh, ETSU is off, so then ETSU is off. So, And then they get Western. Western playing well. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Back-to-back weeks that uh, ETSU – uh, we'll have to play a team that uh, had an extra week to prepare for the Bucks. Your thoughts? Any thoughts you want to say? You want to move on to the next one? Uh, you, looks you, like you really into this one. So. Looks like they moved off a of Mod Green around halftime. Um, he has he was listed as zero for one passing, five carries for four yards and a fumble uh, for the Citadel, and they were in at that point a twenty-four to seven hole. Probably felt like they needed to do yeah. something else and went to Peyton Derrick. Um, I think that team has more questions than answers right now. 
a lot more questions than answers uh, down in Charleston. Things are not going well uh, for the Bulldogs. I mean, for Wofford, you, you know, you're, you knew your season was over. Your coach left in the middle of the year. It's always a difficult situation to keep yourself motivated there. And and good for the Terriers for not just being like, well, that's it. Guess we'll just go out there and see what happens. Like they actually, they, they really um, gave it everything they had and went out and beat a team that they were very much capable of beating. And you know what? You get ETSU coming off a bye at home. Who knows what will happen there? You get you go on the road to a Western Carolina team. It's not very disciplined. We've seen that the last couple of weeks. And uh, their season might be over by the time you go to Cullowee. Who knows what happens there? And then you get VMI at home. And VMI is, they are, you want to talk about ETSU having issues with injuries and depth. VMI has got that by an order of magnitude more. Um, and their season's probably already over. So who knows? Maybe you could salvage two, three wins out of the back end of your schedule and uh, and put yourself in a position to feel good going into the offseason. Yeah, you know, no Colin Ironside. It's a perfect time to roll into VMI. There was no Ironside. He didn't play against ETSU because an injury. Seth Morgan got hurt on the on the first drive Yeah, against ETSU. Didn't even play the second drive. Then kind of tried to gut it out, and that, that knee injury got rolled up on me. Mark Cutsell actually talked to Seth in the press box afterwards. Um uh, he did a newspaper interview and was kind of hanging around, so we went over there and talked to him. And uh, As you'd imagine, military kid, so well-mannered, um, well-spoken. Talked to him about it, and he was like, yeah, it's got kind of rolled up, got to get treatment, you know, I, sh- I should be good to go. Well, then they went with Colin Shannon, who was 15-20, 158 yards and an interception, but he didn't even play against ETSU, so that's the fourth quarterback to take a snap for VMI. That's never good, never good in any season when you have four quarterbacks – it's bad enough they had two rotating. Then you go to three and you go to four. Obviously, not ideal. And now, I, I will say, I do remember in 2016, Youngstown State had four different quarterbacks that they went to for a variety of different reasons, but they also had a defense with like three or four All-Americans on it and were able to pull off a run to Frisco. And also, their starter got healthy and they were able to tread water in the meantime. So, I mean, they, they, Very rare. there have been situations where sure. it has not necessarily burned a team as badly as it's burning VMI right now, but this is more the norm than that. That was a really unique Youngstown State team. I just, it's just, that's a perfect, a perfect storm for the Penguins. Did you see their helmets, by the way, from over the weekend? I did. I did see that. Oh, those are spectacular, man. I, I was telling uh, Stephen May, I would love to see us have like, you know how like Purdue Pete has the creepy eyes and like you have them like looking out on the scoreboard and things. I I would love to do a helmet like that with Bucky, where it's just like it's the new the new era. Bucky is just kind of like staring out of the side of the helmet at people. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I think people would enjoy that. College football is nothing without its memes. If we were just worried about football, then you know we we would be a whole lot worse off. College football is nothing without its memes. Is Todd calling you now? No. Okay. As a, that was... <laughs> oh, we don't turn off our phones because we're clowns. Um, it's all right. It's like our first podcast. That it's was like a, our first that was, podcast. That was a robocall from White Bluff. I don't know. All right. All right. Ah, so let's... Looking at... Oh, so 
Chattanooga. Let's flip that a little bit. I forgot what we were yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were talking about Colin S- Shannon, and then you wanted to go to Chattanooga, I'd imagine. 609 and- yards of total offense. They Ooh. ran for 299, threw for 310. I mean, just you, you, you can't script 600 yards and basically 300 from each facet there. And Hutchinson, 16 of 20, 295, two scores. Ford. 22 carries, 172. Appleberry also 100 yards. 12 carries, 109. He had two touchdowns. Ford had one. Uh, JV and Watley with a touchdown reception. So did Camden Overton. But it was pretty much all Chattanooga. Uh, I mean, uh, not Mercer. VMI gave it a a little bit of a run early. It was 21-7. Then VMI was driving. Then I think it was a turnover. And all of a sudden, it was just lights out from there. And we thought that would be sort of how that would play out. Uh, And, again, that was not knowing – that you're not going to have Colin Ironside or Seth Morgan start the game for you. So to have a, a virtual rookie make his first start, uh, first career college appearance against Chattanooga in that defensive front, certainly uh, a tough day for the Keydets. And Chattanooga did what they did, and that's going to set up. As a matter of fact, uh, VMI had negative two yards rushing. I don't know if you saw that. For yes. The yes. A lot of that was the sack, sack yards for Shannon. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But still – uh, Brady didn't do much, he averaging like two yards a rush. I mean, I, what more can we say about this game than uh, 16 of 20 for 15 yards a pass couldn't say? I mean, that's that's where you won the game right there. The, the rushing attack was what it was, and they still averaged six and a half, and Appleberry was really good in addition to Ford. Uh, and their ability to rotate Appleberry in a little bit more in these these sorts of situations is going to help them out in big games and in the playoffs where Ford is a little bit fresher than maybe he would have been otherwise. But, I mean, you just look at Chattanooga's box score, and that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, just uh, an outstanding day by Chattanooga again. And this collision course next week should be the uh, – and again – you, Are you okay? Are you feeling all right? you feeverish at all? You just say, buddy, it's tough. It's, outstanding Chattanooga it's, in it's, the same sentence? I just – I've moved, he wins basketball. I've, I've almost moved on just to get going. All right, uh, Furman, Western Carolina, and this was uh, Furman kind of did Furman things and, yeah. and you know, kind of nip and tuck in the first half, a big third quarter. They outscore the Catamounts 17-0, and then a feverish fourth quarter with Cole Gonzalez coming in, going 12-16, 253, and a couple of scores. And, you know, he led Western to 20 fourth quarter points and – Western got back to doing offensive things. They threw for 462, 691 yards for Western, and they still lose 47-40. Just too many missed opportunities, and I watched a little bit of this game, and it just, Furman absolutely bullied Western Carolina at the line of scrimmage. I, it wasn't even close. They were just blowing dudes two, three, four yards off the ball when they had the football in hand, and it wasn't even their, just their offensive line. Their tight ends were in there as well, just smashing the outside linebackers, but there were all kinds of holes for Dominic Roberto and Devin Abrams to run through, and they took them, and they, they, they took great advantage of them. I mean, Roberto was like the third or fourth play of the game. The tight end comes across the formation, and absolutely just hammers a dude coming off the edge. The tackle, right tackle, is able to get to the second level, engage a linebacker, and there's a hole that you could drive. Jay, you could probably drive a golf cart through it and just zip. There goes Roberto down the field. Touchdown. 62 yards. I mean, he averaged 10 yards, 25 carries, and he averaged 10 yards. 252. Career high, three touchdowns. Yeah. 
Huff threw 10 two passes. Touchdowns. Two oh, touchdowns. he have two? Sorry, uh, two No, touchdowns. he had a receiving. He had a receiving. He had a receiving. You're right. All right. Uh, Huff threw seven passes complete, three for touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> seven for 10, three touchdowns. Uh, pretty good day there. Ron Miller is now scoring like nine or ten consecutive games or, or something. Western crazy. is – and then, well, the other part of it, like Furman got a special teams touchdown too out of the half, ran the second half kickoff back for a score – that put them up, I think it was, what, 34 to 20 at that point. And Western was chasing the game the whole second half and had to be. But um, yeah, Furman just looked ridiculous up front. Uh, that, that is, of all the teams that in the top four, I think they probably have the best offensive line. I don't know that they have the best skill talent or the best defense, uh, but they certainly have the best offensive line unit. And, and on the Western side... Man, it, it just looks it looks too much like Western. It looks like old school Western, like like classic Western Carolina where you have all of these fantastic athletes and they fly all over the field and they make all sorts of great plays and they have no discipline and they fold at the slightest adversity. It just feels like this team doesn't have the mental toughness to win a lot of these tight football games because they probably had a chance despite getting pushed around at the line of scrimmage to beat uh, Furman. And they were competitive against uh, Georgia Tech's not very good, but they were competitive against an ACC school at the beginning of the year. But they come out, they get punched in the mouth by Sanford, they roll over. They come out, they get punched in the mouth by Mercer, they roll over. I just, that team has enough talent to win more games. Kerwin Bell's done a great job of getting dudes to from Florida, and I mean dudes, like really talented football players, to come to Colloway, and they're just not doing the things that great football teams do at this level, which is all of the intangible stuff. It's just not there for them. All the tangibles are there, and the intangibles aren't. And that's why that team is three and four and one and three in the league instead of you know, maybe uh, maybe they're four and three, or maybe they're even five and two. I think they've got enough talent to be better than their record suggests, but they just aren't putting it together. So, it, it's, and I want to watch, again, I'm not seeing this game yet, and I want to go back and watch it because it was really a tell in the second half of two quarters. You look at it, and as Keith mentioned, you know, you take the kickoff back, it was a 27 20 halftime score. Wayne Anderson Jr., very talented, goes 97 yards for a touchdown. Then they get a field goal and a touchdown to Ryan Miller. You turn to the fourth quarter, and all of a sudden, touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. And an eight-play, 75-yard drive to T.J. Jones, nine-yard touchdown run. Then Cole Gonzalez, who came in relief for Carlos Davis, 42-yard touchdown pass on a two-play, 56-yard drive. Then a one-play, 69-yard drive after a fumble. Furman driving, turned it over on a fumble, and Sincere Lee hauls it in, outraces everybody, and it's a three-point game. Furman comes down, kicks a field goal, and then Western gets to the 26-yard line with the last play of the game with a shot to tie it. Mm-hmm. So got to give uh, the poise of Cole Gonzalez and him being able to do what he could do in the fourth quarter – and Western can score, and they're probably never out of it. But giving up 400 and what was that, 460-something? 426, sorry, 426 on the ground. That's going to be a problem. And we saw ETSU last year 
it was 35-35, and, mm-hmm. and ETSU was having all kinds of issues of stopping West Carolina in the first half. Then ETSU started to dial up some stuff and then shut out Western Carolina. But that was a game where Jacob Sailors breaks a single-game rushing record and Quay Holmes, you know, rushed for almost 200 yards himself as well and ended up breaking the school record for scoring for touchdowns. But still, it, Western Carolina, if they can get better defensively, and not turn the football over, those two simple things offensively, that that's it. The one thing for Western I say was an improvement because when things went south against Mercer after about the third touchdown, they were disinterested in playing the rest of the game. This time they were in it. Like, even in the third quarter, and I'm going to watch it just to see what the difference was, but after they fell down and gave up those 17 third-quarter points, I'm curious to see, you know, down 24 – they didn't particularly do a lot defensively to keep themselves in it. I'm curious to see what the difference was in the fourth quarter to where they were able to make stops and get a turnover. And to my point about discipline, um, Western Carolina in the game, um, 11 penalties for 96 yards, four of which resulted in Furman first downs that extended drives. Western is the most penalized team in the SOCON. 90.9 penalty yards per game. ETSU is next. Do you know ETSU's number off the top of your head? The penalties per game? Penalty yards yards per game. Uh, It's probably right around 60. 58 and a half. Yeah. And they are next. The the only team that is penalized more is is Western Carolina. But Western Carolina is penalized 42 more yards a game. They are just... Not playing smart. They're so good, so gifted, like so talented. So much speed, great hands. Uh, they they can they can blow up any play and turn anything and everything into a touchdown. But they just don't have the discipline to win consistently. And so they need to be able to get up big or they need to play games that are teams that are going to make similar kinds of mistakes. And you just don't do that in the SoCon. You don't do that against good teams in the SoCon. And Furman is not the best team in the SoCon. I don't think they're even in the top three. Uh, but I do think Furman is the kind of team that is going to, at the very least, they're going to play the, the a brand of football that is conducive to winning games, which is don't do a lot of stupid stuff, play hard in the trenches, run the ball effectively, and you can do... Once you have those things, it's amazing how much you can do to get creative offensively and be able to find ways to win football games. And that's what, that's what, Furman's, that's what Furman's done. But I, I'll also say this. So... Uh, we're kind of coming to the end of the SoCon wrap, I guess. So we're getting ready to go into the maybe some national games. I, I don't really want to talk about the national storylines. Uh, the marker is kind of the thing. But um, I just want to point out, this week is Mercer-Chattanooga, right? One of the biggest games in the country. Huge matchup. Huge matchup. Um, but one of those teams has to lose, and Chattanooga still has to play Samford. Right? Or do they both play Samford? Mercer, Mercer hasn't played Samford yet, have they? Uh, Mercer has not played Sanford. Mercer's not played Sanford. Furman has played Sanford. Um, and Sanford won that game. But uh, Mercer, Chattanooga, Sanford, Furman 
are all going to have to play each other at some point if they haven't already. And I believe the only one that has is Sanford and, and Furman. So all of those teams somewhere are probably going to pick up losses and you're going to end up in a circular firing squad situation. And like we talked about last week with conference realignment, that could cost your team a or cost your champion a seed. And I just want to, to my, make my point. These are teams. I'm just, I'm just going to pick these teams out and you're going to tell me what pattern do these teams fit into? Sacramento State, Weber State, Montana State, Montana, North Dakota State, and New Hampshire. What do all of those teams have in common? They are not all undefeated. They are not all undefeated in their conference. Montana lost to Idaho Saturday. Bison lost to uh, South Dakota State. They don't play everybody in the league. There's no round robin. There is that. There is another thing they have in common. I'll give you one more shot at it. None of those teams have a win over a team Mm. above 500. Mm. None of them do. New Hampshire is 4-0 in the CAA. They don't play Delaware or William & Mary. So it is not inconceivable that New Hampshire runs the table in the CAA and somebody else runs the table in the CAA and we don't have anything to separate them. So what happens? The committee seeds them both. If you have an unbalanced schedule in your conference, it confers advantages because teams that may or may not be that good. New Hampshire is the one I'll use to make my point because New Hampshire got boat raced by North Carolina Central. But they're 4-0 in the CAA. There's a reasonable chance they're going to go 8-0 in the CAA. And that win or that loss, that blowout loss to NCCU gets washed away. The committee's like, ah, you know what? We'll still we'll give them give them the seven. Give them the seven. Delaware's better. We'll see Delaware higher. Give uh give them the seven. And they will probably have a better team from uh the valley or the big sky come to their place and beat them in in December in the second round. Because we we don't really have a good gauge of how good they are. Because they don't play a particularly strong schedule, even within a conference that is ostensibly a power conference. This is not about Mercer and Chattanooga. Mercer and Chattanooga are going to get into the playoffs regardless. The bubble's fairly murky this year, but I am confident that those two teams are going to get in. This is about Samford and Furman. Furman has a non-counter on its schedule, but it's winning Southern Conference games. That non-counter is a missed opportunity that's going to get held against it, and they also still have to play Mercer and Chattanooga. If you replace those with two teams that maybe aren't Mercer and Chattanooga, they could all have the same record. You can't separate them, so they all get in. And that's part of why what we talked about last week. And it's part of why I would love to see, especially now that we are beginning to see schools in the Southeast move up to FBS. If the SOCON is trying to rebuild itself as an FCS power, there is a power vacuum at this level. And if you add one or two schools to your conference that play football, you can really solidify yourself as not just ahead of the OVC and what's left of the A-Sun and the Big South, but dramatically so ahead of those conferences. And you end up creating benefits for the second tier of teams 
in your conference that will ultimately lend itself to more at-large bids. This is not 2002 when the playoffs were 16 teams, you know, and, and the SOCON could reliably get three teams in every year because App and Georgia Southern were always good, and then there was usually somebody else, like it was Furman, or maybe somebody else would sneak Citadel in. Citadel back then. Citadel yeah. back then could be pretty good, too. Like, this isn't those days anymore where you should just be happy with two teams. The Valley and this, the Big Sky, and I think even the CAA, I think all three of them at some point in the last decade have gotten six teams into the playoffs. The SOCON should aim for more than two every year because it's out there to be had and to be done, and it will have significant benefits from the conference in the long term. All right. I need a, I need a break. We'll talk national picture on Wednesday. How about that? Sure. We'll talk and about uh, ETSU running back Jacob Sailors. Ooh, all right. So Jacob Sailors will stop by. We'll talk national uh, picture stuff. Say what? We have another interview. We'll see what we got going on. But uh, I just need a break. Need a break. It was a very long game against Mercer. It was a two-hour first half. Wow. Well, it, it was a two-hour first half where literally a lot of things happened. It was hard to... Everything is happening. Yes. Everything is happening. And it was all big plays. It was all big plays. Bud, I hate to tell you, but uh, basketball's in two weeks, so everything's going to keep happening. Yep, and we probably got to start covering some of that as well. Buck Madness is next Monday. Maybe we'll try to get uh, a couple of the coaches, get a segment with them the following Wednesday to preview ETSU men's and women's basketball. That being said, we'll be back with you Wednesday, another edition of the Jay and Key Show. Buccaneers Road Network. Bye-bye. Oh, you got to be kidding me.